0: This episode of Historium is sponsored by Blueberry. Blueberry is the gold standard in podcast hosting, and that's why we use it to host all of our podcasts here on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you would like to get started making your own podcast and are looking for a way to host it, or you're using another podcast hosting platform and simply want to switch, you can get one month free podcast hosting through Blueberry if you go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. John Glisky sipped his whiskey and smiled. By chance, he had just run into an old war buddy who had flown Hueys with him in Vietnam. The two old pilots swapped war stories in the small bar off the Vegas Strip over the smells of cheap whiskey and cigar smoke. With his square jaw and deep tan, John Glisky could have passed as John Wayne, but beneath his rugged exterior and cheerful tone, Glisky was worried, and his buddy could tell. After an hour or so of reminiscing, though, Glisky revealed what was on his mind. He had discovered a damaged oil fitting on the left engine of his Howard 500 aircraft, the one that he bought in 73, and flew every few weeks. The damage didn't look like anything that would result from normal wear and tear. People had tried to kill him before, but would they really be so subtle? But he was probably just being paranoid. Regardless, even though he probably had a few drinks left in him, Glisky excused himself and told his old friend he had to rest up for an early flight tomorrow. Early the next morning, Glisky arrived at the McCarran Airport just south of Las Vegas. He and his co-pilot, a nervous wreck named Jeff Nelson, did a once-over of the aircraft. The twin-engine Howard 500 was built like a beast, specializing in heavy hauls at high speeds. Having fixed the oil fitting, everything seemed fine, so the pair decided that the aircraft was good enough to make the run. They took off around sunrise and slowly turned south. Within a few hours, they were over the Mexican border. Less than an hour after that, they began their descent into the secret location in a sparse clearing in Baja, California, where Glisky landed the plane on what could barely pass as an airstrip. As soon as the dust settled, a crew hired by the cartel Moto Magic began loading up the aircraft. John Glisky had smuggled all sorts of illicit material across the American border over the past few years. This time, the payload was 6,000 pounds of a potent strain of Colombian red hair marijuana. The FBI and DEA had been after Glisky and Moto Magic for years, but he'd managed to evade them at every turn. Glisky assured his co-pilot that this trip would be no different. After the crew had finished loading the hundreds of bales into the cargo bay, the pair of smugglers hopped back into the cockpit and took off under the cover of night in the very early morning of December 9th, 1976. Blisky didn't like how bright the moon was that night, so they took a detour over the Pacific Ocean for a few hours, before turning inland just north of Los Angeles. Their destination was Washington, and they needed to keep a low profile. Blisky brought the plane low as they flew over the almond orchards around Bakersfield in the Central Valley. Within the hour, they were over the Sierra National Forest. That's when the noise from the left engine started sounding off. Soon, Glisky found himself struggling to keep the plane up as the Yosemite Mountains passed by ever closer beneath them. Warning lights flashed around the pair in the cockpit. Glisky tried to focus as Jeff panicked. No matter what he did, the bird refused to gain altitude. The reflection of the moon gleamed across the water below them. Seconds later, the plane plunged into the water before flipping end over end, debris flying everywhere. Both John Glisky and Jeff Nelson died on impact. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is Episode 61, The Dirtbag Gold Rush. Humans have been climbing up things from the very moment our ancestors climbed down from trees. Chinese paintings dating from 200 BCE show men rock climbing up set routes. In the Americas in the 12th century, the cliff-dwelling Anazazi were thought to be fantastic climbers. In 1492, while Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, soldier Antoine de Ville, under orders from the King of France, developed climbing techniques in hopes of aiding in the art of siegecraft. Whether it's for hunting vantage points or transportation or just the mere thrill, climbing stuff seems to be part of our DNA. But climbing as a sport never really took off until the turn of the century, with the advent of aid climbing using ropes, pulleys, and other equipment. Recreational climbing spread across the globe during the first half of the 20th century. After the Second World War, climbing exploded in the States, with the abundance of inexpensive army surplus pitons, carabiners, and the newly invented nylon rope. As the post-war suburbia created a 1950s monoculture, Naturally, some wanted to break free from the unwavering conformity. The beatnik movement grew throughout California as writers like Jack Kerouac embraced a life on the road and inspired young people to flee from new kitchen appliances and freshly cut lawns and into a sense of adventure. The rucksack revolution brought many rebels to jazz clubs and coffee houses, but also to surfing and hiking. As these nonconformists headed for the hills, many discovered the ancient art of rock climbing. They started in the rocky outcroppings just outside of Los Angeles and San Francisco. But soon, eager for new routes, the young rock climbers ventured deeper into California, a state rich with idyllic vistas and mile-high granite walls. Soon, the rebels and vagabonds discovered what would become the rock-climbing mecca, Yosemite Valley. Yosemite National Park lies west of the coastline of the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Middle Eastern, California. The Yosemite Valley is a magnificent gorge about seven miles long and averaging a mile in width. The Merced River toiled for about 60 million years to cut a canyon 2,000 feet deep. Then mighty glaciers ground and gouged for another million years to add more than a 1,000 feet to its depth cutting back the sloping sides to create towering cliffs and hanging waterfalls." The sheer enormity of the jagged rock faces, misty waterfalls, and ancient redwood trees revealed a place where God seemed to have lost all sense of scale during creation. Naturalist John Muir, known to many as the father of national parks, described the beauty of Yosemite better than I ever could. Quote, Though extremely rugged, with its main features on the grandest scale in both height and depth, it is nevertheless easy of access and hospitable, and its marvelous beauty, displayed in striking and alluring forms, woos the admiring wanderer on and on, higher and higher, charmed and enchanted. Benevolent, solemn, fateful, pervaded with divine light, every landscape glows like a countenance hallowed in eternal repose. And every one of its living creatures, clad in flesh and leaves, and every crystal of its rocks, whether on the surface shining in the sun, or buried miles deep in what we call darkness, is throbbing and pulsing with the heartbeats of God." When early pioneers of the valley depicted Yosemite in drawings, many newspapers wouldn't print them, as the editors refused to believe such a place existed. And so as soon as the California climbers entered the pristine valley, They knew they had found their home. Half Dome, Chapel Wall, El Capitan, Sentinel Rock, Glacier Point, all begging for a first ascent. Those climbing pioneers in the early days soon developed into local legends. Stories of their daring climbs and the routes they established circulated around campfires throughout the valley and beyond. By the late 60s, these climbing legends were known as the Stone Masters, and they inspired thousands of young, adventure-seeking souls from throughout the country to make their way to the rock-climbing mecca of Yosemite Valley. From the very beginning, rock climbing and counterculture went hand-in-hand. If you were serious about the sport, you usually didn't have time for a family or a desk job or house in the suburbs. For many climbers, the place they called home was a largely unremarkable campsite, right smack dab in the middle of the valley, called Camp 4. By the 70s, the campsite was filled with wayfarers and 'er ne'er-do-wells, all obsessed with rock climbing. And they sure knew how to party. The campsite was filled with raggedy army surplus tents pitched around ashy campfires that had been burning for years. Coors banquet beer cans and whiskey bottles piled up on every picnic table. Hammocks were slung between nearly every tree in the area. The smell of low-quality weed hung heavy in the air as Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix played on the communal record player. The climbers lived a derelict lifestyle, but they loved it. They would climb all day, sometimes for days at a time, and return to Camp 4 with new routes, new bruises, and new stories of their close scrapes with death. The climbers that lived in the valley year-round, who neglected social norms in order to climb full-time, were affectionately referred to as dirtbags. With 0% body fat fueled by machismo and adrenaline, the climbers pushed their bodies to new limits and reached new heights on the glacier-carved granite. It was the dawn of rock climbing's golden age. But these merrymaking mountaineers were not beloved by everyone in the valley, especially the more conservative establishment in the park. Only a few stone throws away from Camp 4 was the Yosemite Valley Lodge, run by the National Park Service. Over the years, Yosemite National Park became one of the most desirable tourist destinations in the country. Families would leave their suburbs for a weekend to drive up to the park with their hot dogs and camper trailers. These clean-cut families could not be any different from the climbers. They paid good money to stay in the hotels and eat at the new restaurants. Climbers would often lurk in the cafeterias and eat the leftovers from patrons' plates after they left. Lodge staff was told that if they interacted with the Climbers in any way, that they would be fired on the spot. Complaints piled up about loud music, disrespectful hippies, and various other vague charges of indecency and debauchery. But for the most part, this vast cultural divide only resulted in petty squabbles and occasional run-ins with the Rangers. But by the early 70s, some of the more politically engaged factions of the counterculture The hippies, students, and activists who led the protests against the Vietnam War came to Yosemite. Hippies and protesters ran wild in the meadows of the valley, and they fit right in with the residents of Camp 4. In fact, many hippies got involved with climbing, and some climbers even became activists. This did not sit well with the conservative administration of Yosemite Lodge, and the rangers, many of whom were Vietnam veterans. The cultural divide came to a head in 1970, on the 4th of July. Clubs and sticks. It's now a wholesale riot." Chants echoed throughout the valley. Protesters refused to leave. After several injuries and arrests, the main meadow of Yosemite was cleared of protesters. After that riot, things changed. Park rangers were now outfitted with firearms, and rode on horses, and in jeeps. Gone were the days of the 1950s, picturesque, nature-loving park ranger. The park rangers' main focus shifted to law enforcement. And they cracked down hard on the climbers. Rangers raided the camps by surprise and checked the climbers' permits and parking passes. Many of them expired. They arrested anyone they could for smoking pot or disorderly conduct which could be liberally applied to just about anything. The small Yosemite jail quickly filled up. The few climbers who had extra cash paid their friends' fines and fees, but their money dwindled fast. Other climbers adopted an outlaw lifestyle, retreating to live deeper in the woods, or hiding out in crags in the valley, away from the busy Camp 4. By this time, most climbers were balancing on the razor's edge of their meager lifestyle, always one slip away from abject poverty. One day in the winter of 1977, a switchboard operator working in Yosemite eavesdropped on a conversation between park rangers and state authorities about a mysterious downed cargo plane in Lower Merced Lake, deep in the park. She didn't catch the whole conversation, but relayed as much information as she could to her boyfriend, a climber in Camp 4. The campsite wasn't as crowded as usual because winter was setting in, but rumors spread like wildfire. Soon, a few of the climbers planned to hike to the lake to see what the deal was. After a long, freezing hike deep into the National Forest, they finally arrived at Lower Merced Lake, completely frozen over. Scattered metal parts were buried in the snow around them, and in the center of the lake, an oblong metal dome rose just above the surface of the ice. As the climbers nervously trudged across the frozen surface, they soon recognized the dome as the nose of an aircraft. The plane's nose was solidly frozen in the ice, so the climbers began chipping away at the ice around it with axes and pitons. After hours of work, they broke through and peered into the murky water below. There wasn't much light, but they managed to fish out a large bag from the water. When they ripped it open, they were immediately hit by a stench of airplane fuel and hydraulic fluids, but a different smell soon followed, a scent that was pungent, dank, and skunky, a scent they recognized marijuana. They quickly fished out another bundle, and when they did, they noticed countless more bales floating in the murky water around the twisted metal fuselage. The group packed away as much weed as they could carry, and set off back for Camp 4. They arrived sometime after nightfall, exhausted and freezing. They nervously hid their packs and went to wake some of the more senior members of the Stonemasters. After a few shaken tents and hey, wake ups, they gathered around one of the bales. They all examined it closely. Sure enough, it was weed. And good weed, way better than the stuff they had been smoking. The Stonemasters, by now the respected leaders in Camp 4, knew that bringing back the pot could land them in a world of trouble with the rangers. But at the same time, that smuggled pot could be their ticket out of poverty. By this point, many of the climbers had resorted to shoplifting, or even eating cat food to get by. They needed food and gear. Hell, the Stonemasters knew that most of the climbers would take the risk anyway, just for the sake of a good high, so they gave the go-ahead. With the Stonemasters' blessing, the race was on. Often leaving by night to avoid the rangers, the climbers set off for the score of a lifetime. Harsh winter storms made the trek through the backcountry too difficult for some. But many braved the frigid cold and made their way to the frozen Lower Merced Lake. They dragged bale after bale of marijuana from the freezing waters. Some climbers used bits of twisted metal from the wreckage to probe beneath the ice for more gunny sacks. Climbers hauled as much as they could with each trip, but the bags were soaking wet, freezing cold, and reeked of airplane fuel. Bicycles dangled from the bales by the time the climbers made it back to camp. They knew they had to let the weed dry, but one night, after a few days of extraction, some climbers decided it was time for a smoke. But they forgot that the weed was laced with gasoline. A climber rolled a joint, flicked a lighter, and BAM! A blast of flame illuminated the entirety of Camp 4. The climber sat stunned, eyebrows gone, as the others around him recoiled laughing. But after the gasoline had burnt off with the initial flash, the weed was some of the best dope the climbers had ever smoked. They affectionately referred to the fuel-soaked pot as crash bud. Many climbers went to the lodge to call some of their friends who had left the valley for the winter, urging them to come back early. The gold rush was on. Lower Merced Lake was now surrounded by pitch tents as the extraction operation continued in full force. Pitons and woodcutting axes wouldn't do the trick anymore, so climbers showed up with heavy pickaxes and shovels. The work was hard, and their hands stung from the cold. Bundle after bundle was taken out of the lake and loaded into climbers' backpacks to be taken back to camp, where it was dried and stored. Many created their own secret stashes, hiding marijuana in their carts or burying it near Camp 4. More climbers soon arrived, now with chainsaws rented from hardware stores in the valley, trying to get their hands on a few of the remaining bales of pot, now fewer and farther in between. The climbers began referring to Lower Merced Lake as Dope Lake. With warmer weather, the ice thinned. Occasionally, a climber would motion towards the fuselage and ask about the pilot. Long gone, they'd say, probably died on impact. Some felt strange in such proximity to a corpse, but continued their collecting anyway. By spring of 1978, the climbers of Camp Four had extracted hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of premium red hair Colombian marijuana. Entire tents were filled with pounds pounds of weed on tarps with recently bought heat lamps evaporating the harsh aviation fuel and murky lake water that it had been soaked in. They had been selling the stuff in the park, but after a few weeks, the entire valley was awash in weed. So each week, a climber would fill the front trunk of a Volkswagen Bug with dried crash butt, drive to LA or Berkeley, and return with piles and piles of cash. The initial restraint shown by the Stonemasters had shifted to a complete cavalier attitude. 17-year-old climber Chuck Strader remembered arriving at Camp 4 in the spring and being told nonchalantly, oh yeah, there's bales of pot up there if you want to go get one. This newfound devil-may-care attitude about the looting of Lower Merced Lake allowed the authorities to finally catch on. It turned out that the Rangers, as well as the DEA, already knew about the crash and had connected it to smuggler John Glisky. His wife, Pam, had called in worried about him and revealed everything. She said she had been having terrible dreams, where she saw her husband, still looking like a rugged cowboy, suspended upside down in his pilot's harness. A few rangers had scoped out the crash site in the early winter, but the weather was bad, temperatures were dropping, and they figured the little valley was too far off the beaten path for anyone to find. The DEA decided to wait for the weather to clear to conduct a thorough investigation of the crash site. But by now, the rangers had noticed suspicious activity. Traffic was unusually high near smaller trailheads, pickaxes and shovels were selling like hotcakes, scuba diving equipment rentals were sold out everywhere within a two-hour drive. Scraggly climbers who had been dumpster diving weeks before were now happily eating at the Lodge restaurant. Steak dinners, hundred-dollar tips. Something was up, and the rangers finally decided to act. On April 13th, six armed rangers boarded a Huey helicopter bound for Lower Merced Lake. As the chopper descended into the valley, the climbers scattered like ants. Some collected their belongings, while others simply took off with as much diluted pot as they could carry. The helicopter settled to the ground, wind from the blades kicking up snow, and the rangers called for backup. As they investigated, some of the Vietnam veteran rangers likened the situation they dropped into to Viet Cong hideouts, makeshift tarp housing, fire pits, stolen equipment. The ice on the lake, now thin, was peppered with holes surrounded by ropes and pulleys. Elaborate extraction systems had been set up that baffled the rangers. Upon closer inspection, not a single bale of marijuana remained. The climbers had picked the site clean. The marijuana-laden dirt bags headed for the hills, many taking backwoods routes in an attempt to get back to Camp 4. Some got lost for days until finally stumbling upon a trail crew. Several were caught and arrested, but they had no marijuana on them when they were apprehended. Claiming to only be checking out a plane crash, they were let off due to lack of evidence. No one was ever convicted for their involvement in the looting of Dope Lake, which is what many climbers call the lake to this day. It wasn't until mid-June that the lake thawed enough for a salvage operation. On June 16th, a local salvage company pulled the fuselage out of the water. During the operation, the body of Jeff Nelson floated to the surface. John Glisky's body was strapped inside the cockpit, just as his wife had seen in her dreams. Back in the valley, an influx of cash flooded Camp 4. Colorful, high-end tents popped up everywhere. Climbers suddenly had brand new, state-of-the-art gear. Cheap beer was replaced by premium loggers. Every permit was paid right on time. Some climbers finally bought cars, and others even bought houses nearby where fellow climbers could finally shower and relax. Several journalists traveled to Camp 4 to try and get a story about the dirtbag climbers who suddenly struck it rich. But when asked about the pot, the Stonemasters simply smiled coyly without admitting involvement. But they didn't deny it either. Their glassed-over eyes and shiny new gear spoke for themselves. In the end, the newfound wealth was utilized for all sorts of endeavors. Climber Ron Lykins paid his college tuition with his Lower Merced weed money. Famous free solo climber John Backer started a successful climbing gear company with his, Vern Clevenger bought his first camera with the profits and has since become an acclaimed nature photographer. The money-funded excursions into hard-to-reach climbing locations in Asia, Europe, and South America, many resulting in newfound routes and first ascents. In a way, the stonemasters and the other climbers were starving artists who suddenly hit it big. But all they wanted to do was to fund their passion. They just wanted to climb. And so they did and in doing so, they revolutionized the sport and legitimized rock climbing in the eyes of the public. Soon, indoor climbing gyms appeared across the country. MTV aired climbing competitions. Climbers began endorsing products and appearing in commercials. Film crews showed up to capture first ascents in Yosemite Valley. The culture of climbing changed, but the Stone Masters never did. They kept climbing nonstop, some until their 40s and 50s, They never had to surrender their passion or give up their dream. For most of their lives, they were able to respond to the same yearning that naturalist John Muir did back in 1873 when he said, The mountains are calling, and I must go. This episode was written and produced by me, Jake Barton, with writing assistance from Thomas Harlander. My favorite fact that didn't make the episode is this, Pam Glisky, the wife of smuggler John Glisky, the one with the ominous dream about her husband's demise, was later approached by a reporter who told her what happened to all the contraband her husband was transporting when the plane went down. When she heard that a bunch of climbers smoked it and sold it before the authorities could get there, she smiled and said, they were his crowd. John would have gotten along with those climbers just fine. You can follow Historium on just about any social media platform. So if you want some cool historical photos in your feed, follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Historium is part of the independent podcast collective Orbital Jigsaw. If you want to check out some of the other shows in the network, go to orbitaljigsaw.com. And lastly, if you want more Historium episodes, you can get access to my bonus feed at patreon.com historium. My latest bonus episode is about a strange instance where Marvel lawyers argued that the X-Men were not, in fact, human. If you want to check that fun episode out, you can find it and all the others on my Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.